1: Hey everyone, we have a great episode coming up with Matt Manicharian of Sports Info Solutions and SIS is offering 10% off new accounts at SISDatahub.com with promo code BigBlue for listeners of this podcast. It's a great product. It's where I am daily. It's where I get most of the information you hear me cite on this podcast. So once again, that's 10% off new accounts at SISDatahub.com with the promo code BigBlue. Hope Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to the Big Blue Big Board Podcast. I am Dan Pizzuta, joined here by Chris Flum. Chris, how you doing today?
0: Uh, pretty good. You know, we haven't had any franchise-changing decisions in the last 48 hours, so things are almost boring.
1: Yeah, that's how we're setting the bar right now. So today we are joined by a guest that I am very excited to have on the show. We are joined by Matt Manicharian. He's the director of football research and development at Sports Info Solutions. He's also the co-host of the Off the Charts football podcast with Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders. That's one of my must listen to podcasts every week during the football season and even in the off season when they've been doing that. So Matt, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm a big fan of all the stuff you're doing as well. No better place for Giants coverage on the interwebs. Oh, thank you.
1: Appreciate that. So, Uh, Matt, let's just kind of get into you a little bit. Right now, you do work at Sports Info Solutions, and we'll get into that in a bit. And people who listen to this podcast should be very familiar with SIS because I am quoting things from SIS pretty much every other minute on this podcast. But let's get to your background because you started as a scout with New Orleans and the Browns. So you can just talk about how you got into scouting and and how that got you into your current position.
2: Yeah, sure. so I played high school football. I was I was uh, better at school than I was at football growing up, definitely. But I liked football a whole lot more, and I made myself into a decent high school football player. But I got into Duke University, and I was not a you know fit to be playing in ACC football games. So um, I tried working for the team a little bit there. It wasn't really a great time in Duke football, the uh, Ted Roof era, but. When I graduated, I went right back to my high school and I started coaching, you know, as most esteemed Duke graduates do. They go back to their old high school for a volunteer coaching assistant job. Um, And I did that while I did different day jobs, just trying to pay the bills, doing like real estate stuff. And through coaching, I was keeping up my own blog where I was writing down a lot of like football analysis stuff, really boring, but like nitty gritty football stuff that like only a few people would probably be interested in. And I was applying everywhere, every college team, every NFL team, trying to figure out a GA job, just any way I could get in possibly. And through a friend of a friend of a friend of my dad's, uh, there was a connection to like the father-in-law of Mickey Loomis, um, who was the GM of the Saints, still is the GM of the Saints. And I got a six week summer internship in New Orleans. Um, Did that one summer. They went on to win the Super Bowl that year. Came back the following summer and I told Mickey Loomis that I wasn't going to leave. And eventually that became reality. Um, and that's how I got my uh, first scouting job.
1: That's really awesome. So when you are working as a scout, what were your duties to start? Did they change? Did you kind of work your way up during the times you were scouting there?
2: Yeah, for sure. So, um, so from New Orleans, basically when I started there, I was a scouting assistant. And the way they really split up the scouting assistant work was you were doing all pro stuff during the season and all college stuff in the off season. Cause that just reflects where most of the workload is. So during the season, helping with advanced scouting reports, I did a lot of special teams advances. I always tell people the way that I really got the job is the, uh, the special teams coordinator wanted somebody to film the coach's foot kick the ball during practice. And I started doing that during training camp. And when the season started, They needed somebody to do that. So it just made sense to keep me around. Uh, Besides that though, I mean, obviously I was doing lots of different work in the, in the scouting office on, on game days, I was doing uh, the sideline pictures that are now on tablets uh, for the coaches and delivering those and getting yelled at, you know, if the players performed poorly uh, because it must've been the book's fault. Uh, Obviously. (laughs) Yeah, obviously. So all that kind of stuff. And then in the off season, all draft stuff. So, A lot of preparation of just organization of different things. So as soon as the season ends, you're getting ready for the Senior Bowl, all that kind of stuff, getting all the information of the scouts, making sure that they're sending the proper information back into the office, uh, working with the college scouting coordinator, doing a lot of that stuff, then as in the February meetings. Uh, February meetings always my favorite set of meetings every year. That's kind of the pure draft board. But then that leads right up into the combine, and every you got to make those books that all the different people have at the, the little spiral bound books that they had at the combine. Those don't invent themselves. Uh, somebody's got to put them together. So a lot of that type of stuff, and then organizing draft meetings in New Orleans. I was really fortunate because they had a very inclusive process, and really as as the low man on the totem pole, because I was doing all the work, I got to see everything. Um, and that was really cool. Um, in, in Cleveland, when I went there, I was, I was an area scout when I was with Cleveland. Uh, Mike Lombardi kind of poached me, um, to be his Northeast scout there. And I actually had a great experience with him until, uh, the rug kind of got pulled out from under us there. But, um, what by the time Ray Farmer was, was running the draft room and it was, it was him and the Haslam's and Mike Pettin in there and pretty much nobody else. So all the scouts, We were over in Guam, and and sure enough, they didn't pick any of the guys that we liked anyway. (laughs) It probably shows.
1: So as we kind of talk about that, I I kind of want to get into part of this scouting process, and as we're about a month away from the draft right now, of how everything just kind of comes together. And like from a scouting, how maybe a big board comes together, how many times... That big board potentially changes from you know February when you first put it together, then through the combine.
2: Yeah, um, it's really really interesting because the board goes through so many iterations. And uh, I, I joked in the opening of the football rookie handbook. I told the, the joke that we would always say every year in New Orleans, where so you go through the season. If you start off, um, if you if you consider the beginning of the year. Uh, July when when training camp opens for the pro team. All your scouts will come in. You'll have maybe two weeks together to really get to know your own roster, get to know you, make sure you're all on the same scale, make sure that you're integrated with, you know, everything that you're looking for and, and fully understand the needs of the team um, and on the same page. And then you're off. And then, you know, it's August and you're going to college training camps and you're seeing all of the players for the first time. Well, Not for the first time, but for the first time that season, you, you've got to remember you're following these guys. They're, freshman, sophomore, junior, however many years they're in the school. Hopefully your area scouts are getting you to know them over all that time. But then you're really starting to zone in on those draft eligible players um, in the training camp, and you're getting all of your character information and learning everything about the guys from their coaches and from the different people at the school. Um, and then you go September, October, November, and that's really college football season. It's, it's three quick months, really, but at the same time, if you're on the road, you know that's four months where you're spending 10 out of every 14 days on the road usually. Um, And it's just a constant grind. So, um, you know, you're not going to see any of your family, friends. It's just you're off. You leave probably on a Monday. You're gone visiting a whole bunch of schools that week. You're watching some games over that weekend, trying to plan it out so you get to see as many big-time games with quality competition as you can. And then you're on the road again that second week. Might get back Thursday night, and then you'll have Friday, Saturday, Sunday at home before you do it all again. Um, but even when you're home at that time, you're, you're maybe catching up, editing reports, making sure everything's been submitted, circling back on your thoughts. Um, so it's a real grind. You do all that work and you get to know these players. Nobody knows the players better than the area scouts. You know, they are a bad area scouts. Sure. But really, if you're being if you're doing your, your, your job as an area scout, there's nobody that should know these players better than you because you can watch them perform and you can see how they develop over their college career. You're, you're somewhere between this uh, super fan of the college team that just knows everything about them and all of their players and their off-field habits and everything like that and, and an expert because you're watching all these players all these years. Ideally, you're an expert at your craft. So, I mean, the area scouts get all of this great information along with the over-the-top guys and the people that are on the road the whole year. And then in December, you'll have your first round of meetings where you will basically construct all the guys that you want to cross-check. So anybody with a draftable grade at all, it's going to be way, way more than the number of guys that get drafted. Maybe it's 500, maybe it's 700 guys, whatever it is. Anybody that you want to get another pair of eyes on, these guys all are going to come up there, and you get a very basic stack in December. So that's the first time you have your your first like semblance of a board together, really beyond – maybe what the, the personally, the the director has his top hundred board on his own. But, you know, that's the first time you start to get enough players to really start to construct a full draft board. But even right now, it's still very raw. Then you're doing all the cross checks, right? So based on this, we're going to assign our best scouts for each position. Now, instead of covering the Northeast, Dan, you're going to be covering all of the wide receivers and we're going to make you just an expert on every draft eligible wide receiver. That's been called by this first round of stuff. So you're going to see all those guys, and you're going to get a really good stack. And our best defensive line guys are going to get the same stuff on that and on and on and on. And so you get all of your stacks at this position. And then you have your all-star games in January. You're seeing your senior bowl, your college gridiron showcase, your east-west game, your NFL PA game. And then everybody will come back in for meetings again in February. And when you're in for this round of meetings in February, everybody's had all their in-season reports. Everybody's had a minute to catch their breath. Everybody's heard what everybody's had to say at the first round of meetings. But, you know, just getting an overall evaluation on what's going on and what these players are overall. And then everybody's had a chance to dive in on the film themselves and really put together their cross checks and really start to stack these players and rank the players. And these meetings are when this is my favorite version of the board. This is what we would joke about in New Orleans, because that February draft board, it's a beautiful thing. It's pure. It's based on the scouts grades. And really, that's it. And what you have in that is is, um, a real – an evaluation of what these guys are on the field right now that is unbastardized in a lot of ways. And so that's why we joke about it in the beginning of the book. that we say, you know, take a picture of it now because we're going to spend the next two months ruining it. And that's a joke because at some – yes, getting good injury information is important. Incorporating more character information. Understanding, you know, strategically what's going on. Different information will pop out. Of course, you're going to you're gonna learn different things from February to April. But also, there's going to be a lot of crap that comes out from February to April. And there's going to be a lot of posturing and positioning and agents are going to get involved. And hearsay is going to become a lot more of a thing. And coaches' opinions are going to get incorporated. And maybe your doctor gave a guy a degenerative condition grade, even though it actually wasn't. So while I believe in the final draft order, and I'm not advocating that we get rid of all this process, What I am saying is that February board is a really pretty thing. It's a really wonderful thing. And that's what the board is looking like right now. Um, Until everybody finishes up with the whole combine, everybody finishes up with all the pro days in March, they'll go back in in April, and then they maybe have already even started ruining it a little bit. But, you know, they're going to start to incorporate all these numbers a little bit too much. And it's not that I think combine numbers are bad. It's that I think the teams are very bad at incorporating them into their evaluations. Um, This is why we really say analytics is in its nation stage and I think people are, are guessing with how they use these things a lot of the time, and that's why people get so frustrated with it.
1: Right, and I think that's one thing that's kind of come out of analytics is realizing that sometimes bad stats are worse than no stats, and then trying to to figure out the balance there. So while you were in there, and this was a couple years ago, you've been with the Saints, how versed were you in analytics at the time? How versed were uh, the Saints and then eventually the Browns? Oh, was that stuff you were in incorporating or is that something that's still just becoming newer inside the organization?
2: So I'll, I'll answer it on kind of two levels. Cause there's me. And then there's like what the teams were doing. So in new Orleans, I came in with an open time, open mind. I had been a reader of football outsiders since, you know, since they started the website. And, um, it was always, I, I never thought about analytics as like the word "anal." I don't think I knew what that word meant, but I certainly built my entire football playing career on understanding tendencies and being a coach on the field. And, I mean, all of my value as a as a high school football player was the fact that my coach could literally tell me, by my senior year, he just let me call the defense from on the field. He said, you got a better view than me out there. I trust you. You know what I want to do strategically. And as a 17-year-old, I'm out there calling coverages, calling blitzes. And and that was my whole value, because he could worry about the offense and figuring out what he wanted to do on the next series. We were out there playing defense and he could trust me more than any of the defensive coaches. That's obviously valuable in football. I mean, you could ask my teammates that I played with, you know, my hyper athletic strong safety that played next to, to me where I was playing free safety when he, he would say, you know, hey, man, i What are we we looking for here? And I say, there's a really this is when they like to run a slant, Mike. They like to run the slant here, and he jumped the slant and had a pick six. You know, like these are the sort of things that they happen on the play, and everybody knows that's played or that's watching a football. We understand this stuff, but somehow it gets it gets lost in either being like, oh, I'm pro analytics or I'm anti analytics. Like tendencies are tendencies, and football is the game where strategic decision making has more effect than any other sport. That's why football coaches are more important to the sport. And Any others? It's because of all this strategy that goes on. You know, it's it, it's the chess game. And uh, so anyway, that's me. That's I, I always took this into account, and so I always listen to that. As a team, Mickey Loomis was um, and and continues to be forward thinking. He came up really as a cap guy. So, you know, the money ball sense of the word money ball really has to do with cap analytics as much as it has to do with like on field analytics. And he was definitely a cap guy that came up in the league and made his bones that way. Um, and and I think that's where he made all of his strategic decision making from. Um, and then he was really smart. He had a really great head coach and he himself a really good quarterback. And Sean Payton and Drew Brees combined with, you know, an intelligent cap management system. allowed you know, that franchise have a lot of they've had a lot of success over the last 15 years. Um, So he's done that by being forward thinking. That said, I don't think analytics is something that was that was highly valued there. I don't think the team was looking at any sort of modern analytics the way that we look at it. Maybe in the quarterback's room. I remember the offensive coordinator Pete Carmichael having interesting ways of looking at, you know, interceptions aren't always bad. If you get enough big plays, you'll take some interceptions. And that was kind of going against much a lot of football thinking at the time. So they would do their own like mini studies and kind of crude analysis like this. But no, nobody was bringing in statisticians and and that sort of thing to really do the high level analysis that we see going on right now. Uh, I think it's mostly just Mickey being a smart manager and and Sean having really good intuition in the way that that he would coach the thing. You know, Ryan Pace is the as the uh, pro scouting director. He wasn't using analytics so much, but what he was doing was delegating resources well and being really good at gathering information himself and and relying on different things. So um, we did all that. Um, But it, it wasn't it wasn't analytics forward thinking. Now, Cleveland was different. Cleveland, I was completely on the scouting side, but it was very you know, they had the whole analytic operation already set up at that point. Um, you know, Sashi was there, though he was not yet the head of the whole thing. It was it was Joe Banner and Mike Lombardi kind of architecting the thing and guys that are still there, like Ken Kovash doing the analytics stuff there. Uh, they they were coordinating that part of it. But um, that was really kept very separate. It was not it was not something that we were brought together. I sometimes went into Kovash's office to pick his brain, but I was on the scouting side, he was on the analytics side, and we were we were two separate deals, which I think that's really how it is in a lot of places, even in Cleveland today.
1: So let's maybe as we transition now to to your role at Sports Info Solutions, wh- what do you feel is the relationship maybe league-wide with how a lot of these teams are viewing analytics right now?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting because it's really changed a lot in the last three years. When we got our first team partner at Sports Info Solutions in 2016, it was something where teams were like looking at us, kind of side-eyed, trying to figure out who we were not really interested in it all that much to now, I think all the teams to some extent realize that if they don't get out in front of this, they're going to get left behind. Um, you know, even if you take uh, teams that are kind of seem, they seem like they're really backwards and I'm sure there are people inside lots of organizations that are, that are kind of still counter punching and saying, no, 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 you can't do this kind of stuff. You don't want to, I think you look around at a lot of the smart people in the league, you know, the last two Super Bowl champions, for example, um, you're seeing that people are starting to look at things more intelligently. You're seeing that you can't get 18 high draft picks for one player in a trade anymore. And that's because, you know, some of the people that have been doing just forward thinking analysis are are pushing things in that direction. We're seeing more fourth down going for it and, and all kinds of stuff like that. I think we saw one of the most fun to watch football seasons in a long time last year. I think mostly just because um, there's so many different teams doing open concepts on offense, taking advantage of, of a lot of things that, that are brought out by them. Just like three is 50% more than two in basketball and people don't have to stand in the same places that they stood in for a hundred years when they're playing baseball. You know, there are things that we can do in football and I'm not saying it works in high school football where it's really hard to pass the ball a lot of the time. But, you know, certainly when you get up into the NFL level, um, we're finding that passing is more efficient than running and as teams start to rely on passing more often, it's, it's hard to compete with a team like that unless you adopt these concepts yourself.
0: And right now, Dan is definitely grinding his teeth.
1: <laughs> yeah, these are all things I have said many times and the Giants have decided they want to do the exact opposite of that.
2: Yeah, and you know what? There are people, I, I know for a fact, there are people within the Giants organization that are interested in seeing things in a more open-minded way. Gruden's an interesting guy because I think for a while everybody thought like, oh, Gruden, he said the one thing publicly. He's like anti-analytics. And then after a while it became like, wait a minute, he keeps just trading away veterans for, for draft picks. Is that like a smokescreen? Is he actually pro-analytics or is he just pro-tanking or, you know, what, what, what's going on here? I think with, with Gettleman, you know, this whole uh, you can rebuild while you uh, try to compete – I don't disagree with that as a concept. I just disagree with every move the guy makes.
1: Right. Yeah. What he's saying is technically true, but the competing while trading away Olivier Vernon and Odell Beckham uh, and Letting go of Landon Collins and letting go of the good players kind of go, goes counter to being able to compete. <laughs>
2: yeah, which is yeah, like, which is like some issue. of these are just like patently bad. Like I'm not here to criticize Gettleman or the Giants. Like, but oh, I'll go ahead.
1: We do it all the time.
2: I, I, I wouldn't. I you know I don't even. I'm not one of these people that's anti Saquon in terms of just can't draft a, a running back at that spot. Period. End of story. I don't. I don't think that that's true. That's not how I look at generational talents. But. Uh, <laughs> I think it's an interesting conversation. That's not to say that I think that they should have drafted him there. I think it's an interesting conversation. There are some things that I don't think are really interesting conversations. When you trade Odell Beckham and take on the dead cap space that you took on there, you need to get better return for that. You're trading away an asset that's actually more valuable than just Odell Beckham being under contract. They, that's like trading away Khalil Mack. When you trade away Khalil Mack, somebody else has to sign him to a brand new deal. Technically, there's no surplus value there. You're just getting a star player. Star players are awesome, but there's no surplus value. Odell Beckham's a star player and there's surplus value because he's signed what into what's going to become because basically all of the, the money that you paid him as a signing bonus evaporates into Giants land and the Browns never have to think about it. You're trading him to a below-market-level contract. So you've got to get more than what they got in return there. It, you know, it, it maybe the safety turns into a, a, a perennial Hall of Fame type player and then uh i can eat my words but uh that that move i don't really think it's defensible for that reason same thing with Landon Collins if Collins hadn't gotten more than the franchise extended type offer like what you would have gotten based on a franchise type number he got more than that in the open market so you screwed up you screwed up like categorically
0: i basically even said the same thing about the Olivier Vernon, because it's kind of divided that they got the one and three and Peppers for Odell and then Kevin Zeitler for Vernon. Even though Zeitler's a great guard, I feel like they need more than a guard for a top edge rusher.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know a lot about Zeitler's contract. What's Zeitler's contract like? Uh,
0: I believe it's 10 guaranteed for the next two years.
2: Okay. So he's signed probably to about an equal type of contract to, to OV. OV's, you know, pretty healthily paid also. Um, so good players at both positions. I, I could see an argument both ways. One that, like, I'm probably with you. I probably lean in the direction of, okay, but is going to be a more impactful player because he pays a more valuable position, so you should get more for him. I probably lean in that direction. But at least there's, like, a little, like, modicum of, like, maybe he's as valuable, like, um, whereas I think in the other deals, it's just, it's just kind of categorically wrong, Um, not to be, uh, <laughs> nope, that's,
1: that's the story this podcast has been telling since that happened. So uh, I'm happy we see some some outside agreement there. So while we're here, let's, let's just move into your role at Sports Info Solutions and what y- you're doing there. Let more people know kind of what Sports Info Solutions offers. Like I said, at the top, people who listen to this podcast are, are at least familiar with the company uh, because I say, according to Sports Info Solutions, about 18 times an episode. Um, but just give us a little more of what uh, your role is now, because I know it started as just baseball. Only football has been recently at SIS and and what you guys are doing right now.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, you guys, are you guys uh, Yankees fans also? Are you Yankees Knicks or, or what, what's your allegiance? I am Yankees and
0: thankfully not a basketball fan. Otherwise basketball. I would have been Knicks.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's the same here. Okay, so we, we, yes, we were founded as a baseball company. We were founded as Baseball Info Solutions, and we work with, with the Yankees of Major League Baseball, who I'm sure bring you guys a little bit more happiness than the Giants have been bringing you uh, in, in, in the last couple of years, at least. Yeah. As this uh, gentleman
0: can't trade away judge.
2: Right, that's 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 out of his wheelhouse. And and Cashman doesn't have to worry about uh, Steinbrenner coming in and, and forcing him, too. Yeah. Uh, that, so. Um, yeah, no, we so we were orig- originally Baseball Info Solutions was founded in 2002 by John DeWan, who had founded Stats Inc. back in the day, and Bill James, who's Bill James. Um, so those guys wanted to go deeper into baseball and really provide information that could help the teams win games. Um, so they started gathering all this kind of intricate baseball data about everything from shifts to, you know, where the ball was landed in, in precise and, and started calculating all the different park factors and just kind of brought about really like this age of analytics in baseball to the point where uh, now we work with, I think, about 25 of the 30 major league teams. Um, and we cover all kinds of major league information, minor league information. We cover the NPB, uh, that's Japanese baseball. So it's just uh, it's, it's flourished as a company. And in 2015, they decided to expand into football. And really try to to attack this as it started people started to grow an interest as far as football went with it. And they kind of saw the writing on the wall. So, meanwhile, that's when I was kind of doing my whole thing with uh Saints and the Browns. And then when I left the Browns, I had gone back to school to get my master's in sports analytics from uh, Columbia University. And the guy that ran the program, he was also the guy who's the president of Sabre, uh Society for American Baseball Research. Um, and basically I learned everything I could about baseball, basketball, and soccer analytics there because he sold me on this idea that football was going to go the same way that these other sports went. You know, baseball's already been down this road. Basketball is in the process of going down this road. And it's kind of just inevitable that analytics – analytics is just using using data to make better decisions. And that's applicable to all walks of life and all sports and especially anything like, like that's a zero-sum game like football. Where there's only one team that wins the championship every year. This, this sort of thing, you know, in a cap-controlled league – this is something that can really, really help you um, in a strategy-driven game. So I basically he basically introduced me to the guys at SIS who had started doing their analysis, but they realized really quickly they needed a football guy. They needed to understand how to connect this to football and the real on-field strategy or else they didn't have a chance. And so that was to their credit, and, and that's how we came together. And I see myself as pretty much a translator between the football and the analytics and making sure that everything is being taken into account from one side and the other at all times. Cause I mean, we have analysts, you know, we have a whole staff of analysts and these guys are incredible. The research that they do um, you know, it, it, it'll, you know, it, it, it really be a humbling experience when you see these guys and just how smart they are and just knowing you're the dumbest guy in the room every time, but, and, and just have to be okay with it. Um, the guys are unbelievable. And then at the same time, I've had the opportunity to build up this this football scouting department where we have 60 guys come in every year. They're mostly entry level guys just like in our baseball department where we built up this following where we have guys that have come through uh, our doors and now work for every major league baseball team. We're starting to get that place at Sports Info Solutions where we're training these guys up. And essentially they're learning how to become quality control coaches, they're learning how to become area scouts, they're learning how to become analysts. Um, And they're watching thousands of hours of football, charting data from every game in the FBS, uh, college football, and also the NFL, of course, on the most intricate level possible. So that as opposed to, to kind of grading players on every play, what these guys are doing is trying to record every event that happens on the field in as much most intricate detail as possible. And then we use the data. You know, we send that over to that to that staff of analysts that I was talking about and use that to let us us learn from the data as opposed to the other way around. So SIS has grown, uh, you know, on the football side to a point now um, where, I mean, as you guys know, you can follow us on Twitter all the time. We're putting out stuff in the blogs all the time. But really the core of our business is we work with the teams. We work for the teams. Um, We're trying to help them get better and create a competitive advantage, and we're happy to have the opportunity to do that. But then with things like the Football Rookie Handbook and, and stuff like that too, we're also trying to put this stuff out into the public sphere as well so that fans can become smarter. And And the reason for that is simple. We find not only is that fun, but as fans get smarter and they clamor for this stuff more, it gets straight to ownership. Um, and then it helps our business at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, that's kind of also my hope, especially covering the Giants, where I feel sometimes it's, it's a little behind maybe some of the other teams, but I've found when... I've been using it and, and the SIS data hub is just a consistently open tab on my browser. Uh, So I'm thankful for that, but I do want to talk about the, the SIS football rookie handbook because it it just came out recently. And it's, I mean, we're talking about the drafts on this podcast usually, and this is uh, just a great resource for uh, it's the perfect blend of what we've been talking about of scouting and there's a full page of analytics on, on each prospect. So uh, can you just bring us into how this came together or why you wanted to put it out and just what people can get from it?
2: Yeah. Generally the rookie handbook, the concept is to make you the GM. Um, I mentioned that SIS, we do all this work for the teams where really they're relying on us for the analytics that we provide. Same time, we have this group. We have the largest scouting department, larger than any football team, all under one roof here in Copley, Pennsylvania. And so, what we were able to do is create our own version of a scouting process and a, and a draft board and all that kind of stuff. And that's really what we're trying to bring you here with the book. So, we've based on what I've done with the Saints and with the Browns, we've kind of taken the best of both worlds to create an NFL style kind of scouting process. We've gone. We've done the, the the reports. We've done the cross checks on all of these different players, and we've written up NFL style scouting reports on all these guys. So you get your trait grades on all the different players. You get um, what they can do in the run game and the pass game. How they project by the by the first game of their second year, which is how we like to project guys um, with both of the teams that I that I went in. So um, you get all that NFL style scouting information, and then side by side with that, you have what you got. You were talking about that analytic breakdown. And what I think is really cool about the analytic breakdown is not just looking at things like, oh, my God, Kyler Murray is way ahead of everybody else in almost every stat. Um, that's interesting in its own right, uh, because in terms of what he did on the field as a football player, which is different than you know just his projection of what he is as going to be as a pro, what he did on the field, it really stands out but you can also look at things and see things about how these guys are used. Not all analytics are just there to tell us, okay, this guy's the best, this guy's second best. You know, we want that one Holy grail metric to tell me who the best player is. I think anybody who understands football understands that that's not really a, a realistic way to look at the game and understand it. There's always an equal and opposite reaction that, that the defense can have kind of, you know, if you double team a wide receiver, then he doesn't have great stats, but you can run the ball every play of the game because of it. Then. You know, that tells you something about the receiver's performance, doesn't it? So you can use the rookie handbook to see a little bit more about how players are used, where they excel. For example, looking at running backs and if they're zone scheme guys or gap scheme guys and how they perform in one versus the other or corners and seeing how they're performing in man versus zone coverage. I'm always much more interested in how a corner performs in man than I am in how he performs in zone. You know, even if I'm a zone focused team, a lot of the time, it it, it can be tricky to look at just, just zone coverage numbers overall. You know, if I'm a cover two team, show me how this corner performed when he was in a cover two, that's one thing, but just looking at his zone numbers overall, but maybe he's playing a lot of, you know, three Mabel a lot of the time, and that's not really a great understanding there. So, you have all these different ways that we break things down for the teams and and you can kind of get, this is the first time we've ever released it to the public where you can get a picture of that stuff and you can start to understand, okay, this running back was lined up out wide about 20% of the time. I can see how my team has a vision for using him if they drafted him, et cetera.
1: Yeah. It's great because the, each prospect is basically, you know, two pages in the book. The, the left side of the page is, just the the straight on scouting report, what what the scouts have seen, what they think they can contribute, and then the right side is is the numbers and a lot of the traits, and it's just it's very easy to digest. I'm just I just have it open to Hakeem Butler's the page right now, and just real easy things, all of all of his his scouting, and then you look over and it, great numbers on route running, three point seven yards per route. positive play percentage with man, 46.3% against zone. You can see you lined up in the slot 24.6% of the time. So it's just, it's really, it's, it's been great and easily digestible. And I've been using it pretty much daily since I got it.
2: Yeah. I'm pumped that you like it. Yeah. It's really cool. I mean, sometimes I'll just be sitting by myself even, and a player will pop up or somebody will ask me about him and I'll be like, Oh, let me check what, what we wrote in the book about him. Just to remind myself what the player was. You know, it's hard to keep, you know, 250 or 400. We wrote up over 400 players for the book. We put 250 reports in there, uh, the top guys. We didn't want to bore you guys with with the lower prospects. We already had 600 pages worth of information in there. Um, but just even getting a refresh, oh, okay, this guy, I remember what we thought. Of him. Oh, okay, yep, I remember that dude. Okay, the guy with the big arm, okay, but he's, I remember this dude. Um, so it, it's nice for me just to have it as a reference guide, honestly, and I, I'm excited to sit there during the draft and, and as guys come off the board to revisit each of the pages. Before we get
0: just a little bit more granular and talk about individual prospects, because we definitely want to do that. You've mentioned building draft boards a couple times and just for ourselves, this is getting to the point where Dan and I will be starting to put together our own board for big blue view. And I was just wondering what your process is like and what style i should say of board you prefer
2: Ooh, i love it i love it so i actually came up and i had two different styles of boards and i think these are the two main style of boards that you see there's kind of the old school style of board which is round based grading so each grade corresponds with a round and no matter what year it is you say I watched his film and I think he's a third round guy and somebody else says, I think he's a fourth round guy. And then you argue about that, even though maybe those are actually the same thing, or maybe you got, you know, <laughs> it's hard to, it's whatever a third round or a fourth round means to you. Um, that's kind of the old school way of looking at things. Um, that's how we did things in new Orleans. That's not to say we didn't do a lot of intelligent things as well, including, you know, trade, and, and different things like that. Um, but you'll do that. And, and, uh, It's important no matter what scale you choose just to make sure that all scouts are always on the same scale. That's something that we spend a lot of time with here at SIS, making sure that we watch a lot of players together and calibrated, not just their overall grades, but our trait grades. So that we know if if we say a guy has seven speed, that we're in agreement about what seven speed means. If somebody doesn't think that seven speed is five speed, you know, you'll get the differences. Okay. Somebody thought six, somebody thought seven, somebody thought six, somebody thought five, but if somebody thought five and somebody thought seven, then we got a problem. Um, anyway, there's the round-based grading, and then in Cleveland under Lombardi, we did the Patriots way, we did uh, role-based grading. So the role-based grading would be, I think this guy's going to be a third down back for us. This guy's a three-down starter at inside linebacker for us. Whatever the guy's role that he plays on the team is, and if you're a starting-level player, there's a definition for that. If there, if you're a Pro Bowl-level player, there's a definition for that. If you're a, 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 just a sustainable-level player, you know, a kind of – Minimum or if you're all of that, you've got these levels set and you start to understand what the player is for your team, where he fits in on your team versus the players that are on your roster. Um, And so fitting in that kind of role based grading is my pref. It's my preferred way of looking at things. And what that also does at the end of the day is if we say, okay, we had X number of players that we graded as solid starters or better. Then maybe we have 40 first and second round grade. Maybe a solid starter is supposed to be a first or second rounder in your in your round based system. Well, maybe we only have 40 guys that are solid starter level players this year. So there aren't there aren't 64 guys that match up with first and second round grades. So I, I think it, it ends up being a more kind of intuitive way of looking at things. And uh, the real key for me always is so stacking each position, having a vertical stack for each position and then horizontally being able to integrate your vertical stacks. Um, And to me, having the role-based rating, knowing going into the process that a running back that can only play on first and second down or on third down is categorically below a third down pass rusher, that helps you make that horizontal stack a a, a more feasible process.
0: That is usually the way our board works out, maybe not specifically with uh, numerical or trait-based grading. But that two-axis, I first started doing it when Jerry Reese was still the general manager, and I tried to build my boards based on what I had at least heard second or third-hand, how the Giants did theirs, where you had the, individual, uh, the round neighborhoods. So you had top 10 picks, the blue-chip guys, then you had the mid-first, then first-second, and so on and so forth, and then broken down across each position. At least from what I hear now— the, under Gettleman, the Giants do have that board still, since they both probably learned it from Ernie Acorsi. Yep. But then he still uses the uh, 1 to 100, almost like NFL.com style big board.
2: So he's, are you saying his grades are on a 1 to 100 scale? Or are you saying that? Uh, it, stack he players, one single Quint, stack
0: like of players. Quinton Williams would will be player one, and then Josh Allen, Nick Bosa, straight down to player, I don't know, 500 or whatever.
2: Well, so at some point you got to do that. So we have we, you have the vertical and you have the horizontal, and that way you have your nice kind of like matrix when you look out at, at the big wall, right? And so that that huge wall is going to be covered. You know, quarterbacks is going to be all the way to the left on the top, going all the way across to having you know free safeties and kickers all the way at the right on top, and then you have you know first round, second round, you know going top to bottom, or maybe it's not round, maybe it's just grade if it's if it's you know kind of Pro Bowl level, starter level, backup level, you know whatever. And then you'll fill out like that. But then at some point, you also have to stack, especially when you're talking about the, the higher players. You've got to figure out going into the thing, um, okay, what is our first, you know, take the first round? What's our order of these first 32 players? And it doesn't need to be exact. It doesn't need to be like bound to that list. But I mean, hopefully, with by the time it comes to draft day, whatever you're drafting, you have a list of as many guys as up to the number that you pick at. You have those guys really sorted out what order they're in and, you know, in your head so that you know that if you were on the board, you're not you're not trying to make a decision. When you get to the fifth round and you, oh, you three guys left with third round grades, let's pick one of these three guys. OK, then you can talk about which one should be. doesn't really matter about your like individual long list. But I think at some point you you have to you have to. That's what I call horizontally integrate your board into into one into one stack so you know who you're going to pick at what point.
1: Right, and so this leads into uh, a question I did want to ask because I think goes in with the Giants and, and how to re- work in positional value in that um, because I think the Gettleman has maybe to a fault been uh, best player available. Um, and I think that term changes depending on the person. It seems Gettleman does actually believe best player available uh, no matter what. He has a little post-it note in his pocket apparently that, that says that. So I know like if we... Looking through the handbook right now, I think your highest grade would be Quinn and Williams, and then I think it goes Ed Oliver, then Josh Jacobs. I'm not sure if you were putting a big board together with that; those would be your top three, or is that how that would work?
2: So that's a great question. So we didn't actually vert- we didn't do that integration uh, across the board. Those are our grades. I think they easily we would say Quinn and Williams is is kind of separated from a few of the guys. We think he's our top guy in the whole draft. I think all. Of- guys that are in that 7.1 to 7.0 grade range, those guys, you know, that tier, what we would want to do over the course of March and April is make sure that we have those guys stacked exactly how we like them. So, uh, you know, I I also, I personally have a thing where even if we have running backs graded very highly, like I know we have a very high grade on Josh Jacobs, I categorically am a little bit, uh, you know, I want to go for positions that have higher value over position, So if I have guys that are at the same grade level, I want Ed Oliver over Josh Jacobs, even if they're at the same grade level or, uh, yeah, I think they're the exact same grade in our book, um, because for me, the position scarcity of having a defensive tackle that can do what Ed Oliver does is much more important in your team building than Josh Jacobs. You know, every every team when you go there. Your defensive coordinator, your offensive coordinator—they'll give you a list—one, one through eleven, or even one through twelve now. You know, if you consider a fullback and a third wide receiver or whatever, it'll be of what their position importance is. So, this is the most important position in my offense. This is the least important. I can win with anybody at this position. I need a guy that's special at this position. Um, So, I, I, on some level, you're considering position scarcity. But if the guys are at equal, you know, that's for guys that are at equal levels. I agree with Gettleman that. When one guy's better than another guy, when you've got your Quinning Williams just graded a lot higher than you've got any of the other guys graded, you've got to take Quinning Williams.
1: Right. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I think maybe last year he did have Barkley so much higher than everyone else, uh, but that's. I, I mean, think that's, it's very possible. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a you new know, conversation we're going to have for a while with the amount of quarterbacks that were available and the need. Yeah. need a so let me say one
2: thing, though. Yeah. Quarterback is different. Right. Just is always different quarterback I don't think best player available applies necessarily to just because the the level of importance of quarterback we can we can circle around on that one <laughs> yeah I
1: I would agree with that also apparently the Giants did not last year or they just don't think it's a need still which you know, is possible <laughs> um, but so we'll get into quarterback now because it kind of seems like through uh the the rookie handbook and the grades given out you are in agreement with pretty much everyone else that it's kind of a two quarterback class and it really just kind of drops off from there
2: yeah we've got two quarterbacks with starting level grades i think that both of these guys are really interesting prospects i don't see either of them on the level of of you know a baker mayfield type of prospect um and i think they're they're probably a hair behind some of the guys from last year i think uh you know probably the top three guys at least in my book but um, I see these guys as with the ability to become very good starting quarterbacks. Kyler Murray, high, high upside, um, but there are obvious risks associated with him. So I see a really wide band of what you could have with Kyler Murray. On the upside, you could see a Russell Wilson plus type player. Um, I think that he can be even better kind of on schedule with uh, making the throws within the course of the offense than Russell Wilson can be at times. I think Russell Wilson. Uh, has a little bit of a sturdier frame. I know Kyler Murray's put on some weight in the offseason, but we've seen Russell Wilson play um, with, with a little bit of more meat put on him, and I think Kyler, Kyler Murray would be wise to go in that direction because I don't worry about the height so much in the modern NFL. We've seen him perform. I think he's got, what, four teammates that are going to get drafted from his offensive line. I'm not really, I'm not really super concerned about the size of the guys in front of him, I'm concerned about where he goes, if he'll have some ability. You know, I don't think it mattered uh, how good Josh Rosen was last year. I think that he never had a chance. Um, And I don't think many quarterbacks would have a chance in the situation that he was put in. So uh, Kyler Murray, uh, the upside, I think is tremendous. Also, I think that there's a high risk there. Um, and it comes down to the frailty for me more than it comes down to, to anything else. And along with that, it's lack of experience. He and Haskins both don't have, you know, one year starters really in college. Then moving over to Haskins, Haskins is more, I think we kind of know what he is. I think that he doesn't have the upside of Kyler Murray, that you don't see the athleticism with him. You see a guy that that's a pocket passer. You see a guy that um, can do things on schedule really well at the first and second read are there. Um, you see him get the ball out of his hands quickly and accurately um, when things take a little bit longer to progress and things try to go a little bit more downfield, we see a, a little bit of things fall apart. Accuracy wise, we don't see the best footwork when, when he gets to his his third read on his throws. I'm not saying that he can't do it. I'm just saying that that wasn't really within the wheelhouse of what we saw with him at Ohio state. Um, that said the 50 touchdowns were really impressive And you see a lot of really good plays on his film to go with some where you you can you can pick on these guys. Um, Both those guys a little bit like Trubisky in the sense of you only really have one year of seeing them start. Um, But I do think, you know, I like these guys as prospects better than a Trubisky, especially given what we've seen from Trubisky early in his career. Um, After those guys, you get guys with more experience. But I think from seeing enough film, the scouts have kind of had enough. I I, I, would. Remember thinking Drew Locke three years ago, Oh man, this guy could be good. I remember uh, as a Duke alum uh, seeing Daniel Jones take the helm and thinking, you know, he could be exciting and knowing how excited Coach Cutcliffe was about him at the time. I haven't seen either of these guys become, become people that you could trust really, you know, to give them the ball when the game was on the line. I have a little bit more interest in Will Greer. He'd probably be, you know, the guy that that I peaks my interest a little bit more in terms of taking a shot on somebody after the first two. But I don't think anybody outside of those first two guys is worthy of a first-round pick, in my opinion.
0: That's pretty much our opinion as well. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that, and I think a lot of that comes from when I'm looking at the the SIS data and from on-target percentage. I think you look at Murray and Haskins are among the the leaders there. You look at why you wouldn't be high on guys like Jones and Locke because they're significantly lower and then you look at someone like will Greer who does have I think the highest on target percentage if I'm uh, correct there so at least it's a skill that does translate and that's what I try to look at a lot
2: yeah and uh, I'll also let you guys know a little bit behind the scenes when we when we deal with the teams also we uh, adjust that that on target percentage for the throw depth. And When you start to adjust that, then all of a sudden these guys really start to stand out again. Kyler Murray and Will Greer, um, you start you start to really see um, things that they, they get you excited and the separation, at least from the numbers standpoint, in terms of the on field performance. I you know I think those guys there's there's good reason to to like a lot of their their pro projection traits.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So I uh, let's get you on maybe uh, one more position group. We go to probably another. Part of what the Giants have traded away and need to get better at is edge. And this is a, seems to be a particularly deep edge class. I, I know through the handbook, your edge rankings are, are pretty around where the general consensus is. Is there uh, anyone from... Uh, this group, you think, has
2: been uh, better or should be talked about more? So, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the book on, on Bosa and Allen is what it is. I think these are top guys. And just looking at the Giants strategy and being, you know, kind of the best player available, if you just look at this draft in a macro sense, the defensive line is the strength of this draft. It's the strength early, middle, and late. Um, again, defense is strong throughout the draft. Offense, I don't think there's a lot at the high end. But, again, you see good depth. Um, I think there are a lot of day-two offensive line starters that are available. I wouldn't be shocked to see the Giants try to go there. Um, But um, early on, I think that if you're looking for value, you're going to find it on the defensive line. And uh, I think really kind of five of my favorite players in the entire draft, Quentin Williams, Ed Oliver, Nick Bosa, uh, Montez Sweat, and Josh Allen, all these guys I think you're getting – you know, potential game-changing players when you talk about what these guys have to offer. It really wouldn't surprise me to see the Giants go for one of these edge guys. I don't think Bosa's available for them, but I think if you want to know what he's going to be, just watch some San Diego film from last year because the, the guys are identical the way they play. And, I, I mean, the young Bosa might be even more polished than, than the old Bosa already. It's, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. Um, And then I think that Josh Allen, the the play on the field, has spoken for itself. He's been a really good player the last couple of years. And Montez Sweat, I think this is what I would correct about him. People think he was just a workout wonder. People want like, oh, this guy came out of nowhere and he didn't do anything in college. You look up his analytical profile. This is a guy that's had some production as a pass rusher. This is a guy that's gotten into the backfield and been forced a lot of pressures. So this isn't somebody that's, oh, he just ran 4-4-1 and now we're interested in him. Um, this is somebody that, that before the combine ever happened, we had this guy, you know, right at the top of our rankings for edge rushers in the book. And uh, there's good reason when you look at it on the film, which which I think has gotten lost in the combine performance a little bit. It,
0: which is a thing that does tend to happen.
2: Of course. Just, that's why we got that February board, man. That yep. February board is a beautiful thing. Personally, I
0: i don't bet because it never goes well for me, but <laughs> I, I would almost put money on Montez Sweat being the Giants pick at this point.
2: Oh, interesting. He
0: profiles out like Lorenzo Carter, who they were very interested in, but more in just about everything. And they've got that needed edge now because their pass rush without Olivier Vernon was basically non-existent.
2: Well, he fits the profile: big, fast, strong. That's right. Giants are- have won some games doing that. So it's you know before we all laugh too much, um, they've 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 won a lot of games by being big, fast, and strong. They have, and
1: it seems like that's what they're trying to uh, get back to. At least, it, it's, at some points, um, I would say Odell Beckham was big, fast, and strong. But uh, you know, I guess can't always have everything. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> it
0: wasn't particularly big.
1: Yeah, you was fine. Matt, I think we've uh, taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll let everyone listening know uh, where they can find you.
2: Yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter at Matt Mano, and you can find Sports Info Solutions on Twitter at Sports Info underscore SIS. Definitely check out the SIS Football Rookie Handbook. It's available on ActaSports.com and on Amazon. And there's a brand new Kindle edition that is out today. So you can get the Amazon Kindle edition for just uh, 15 bucks and have this awesome resource available to you on your cell phone. You can pull it out at the bar when somebody asks you a question about a player or make your girlfriend look like she's an expert in front of your your buddies so that uh, everybody's impressed by by your trophy, babe. Whatever Whatever you do with this sort of information, you can get it on your cell phone now as well. So check that out.
1: That's a great deal. Uh, thank you so much. And also, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna plug your podcast off the charts. I listen to it every week during the regular season, but listen to it during the off season. They just had an episode with Mike Tanier of Bleacher Report uh, talking about the role of analytics and whether that's blending into tanking. It was a great episode, great discussion. Yeah, Mike's really just
2: anti-analytics, so we don't really we don't really get along with him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, for more on that, definitely check out Off the Charts. It's it's a pleasure always. Like I said, Aaron Schatz is one of my heroes going back. So it's cool doing that with him every week. uh, No doubt about it. All
1: right, great. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. We will be back at the end of the week to talk some more draft stuff. So we will talk to you again soon.
0: More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals.